law and grace. That's the only slide you'll see today. Um, and I use that phrase, perhaps a little surprisingly, given the, the scripture text this morning. But that theme is the theme of the entire Bible. Law and grace. In, in a very simplistic kind of way, but still true, Old Testament is law, New Testament is grace. Moses, Abraham, uh, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah are law. Jesus, of course, the center, and then following on his heels, Peter, Paul, James, uh, John are people of grace. And it's so important that we come back to that very basic truth from time to time because we don't want to believe it. That is when I say we, the, the human heart, the, 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 the nature that is born into us wants to reject grace and go back to the law. And we need both of them. But what we see in this passage is a, is a demonstration of why it's so important. And we'll see that as we go forward. So let me first of all just kind of walk through the story a little bit and, and give you some, some, of the, um, some of the basic truths that I see here and, and factors uh, about this story. Um, in, in the 17th verse, notice that it says um, the priest and the Sadducees were there. Now remember, the Sadducees are the ones that don't believe that resurrection happens to anybody let alone Jesus. And so they were among the first to be angry that there was anyone claiming that Jesus or anyone else was resurrected. And so they were the loudest or maybe perhaps the first to protest among the Jewish leadership about resurrection and about someone following this Jesus who they claimed to be resurrected. In, um, in the 19th verse, now this, this is important, we'll come back in detail on this in a moment, but an angel of the Lord came when Peter was in jail and set him free. Um, this happens twice in Acts, by the way. When I first mentioned this to, to Linda, just talking a little bit about what I was going to preach about this week, she said, oh, yeah, that's the story when he's let out of jail and he goes back to the church he was praying for him. I said, no, no, that's not it, honey. That comes later. It's a very similar story, but uh, it, it's really important about the angel. And, and not just that... The angel set him free, but what the angel said. Um, and then from the 21st verse down to the 24th, um, we see when the, the Sanhedrin, the leadership of, of the Jewish people, was, became aware that this happened. Like they, they put him in jail, and, and not just Peter, by the way, all the apostles. Um, and, and they thought, okay, we're going to deal with this in the morning. And they get to the morning and find out, hey, wait, he's not there. He's gone. What is going on? And they just kind of have egg on their face. Um, but this, this was um, the first of actually a couple other miracles involving prison. Not just the one I alluded to that happened to Peter later, but we have the Apostle Paul in prison and the earthquake happened. Um, and we'll get to that later in Acts to, to set him free, although he didn't leave. And there was another time where Paul was um, in Jerusalem, and it was the beginning of the last several chapters of the book of Acts, we'll get to at some point, is going to show us how, how Paul 
was, was the centerpiece of a riot in Jerusalem about Christianity and the, and the Jews. And there again, law and grace are clashing. And Paul is arrested and in jail. And an angel comes to him and tells him about what, what's going to happen and how basically he is one day going to have to stand before Caesar himself. But there was a long road between that day and when that would actually happen. And so this, this angelic um, entrance into, into these stories is really important, what they do and what they, what they say. Down to the 25th verse then, um, actually the 26th, notice that it says this, um, when the, the Sanhedrin <clears throat> realized that they were, they were gone, they said, well, let's go get them again. Let's find them. But it says in 26th verse, they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The, the crowd was on the side of the apostles for the most part. The crowd was in their favor. But Peter and the apostles, to their credit, didn't use that favor to their own personal or political advantage. And that's an important thing, too. They stayed with grace, and, and they stayed with the message that the angel you know, gave to them. Um, the 27th verse then says that uh, they, were, they did then, indeed, appear before the Sanhedrin. Um, this is the second time this has happened to Peter and John, but it's all the apostles before the Sanhedrin. Now, the last time Peter and John were there, they were warned, all right, you guys, knock it off. You're, you're going around telling people that Jesus is resurrected. You're going around telling people about you know, this, this new way, and, and this is just wrong. We don't want you to do it anymore. And, of course, they didn't adhere to that um, demand from the Sanhedrin. But what that means now is because they disobeyed a direct order from the high priest in the Sanhedrin and were brought back in violation of that previous order, now action can be taken against them. But the Sanhedrin had this difficult um, dilemma to realize that the crowd wasn't on their side. And so how do they handle this? What, what do they do? Um, they, you know, they gave him these strict orders, and they didn't. And they basically said in the twenty-eighth verse, "You know, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood." And and they were, and that was obvious. But they were in denial about not just the resurrection of Jesus, but they were in denial about who was responsible for the death of Jesus. Now the Romans had a hand in it too, but what got the ball rolling was the Sanhedrin. And of course, this was all part of God's will and of God's plan for Jesus to go to that cross and die. But they're refusing to admit even that much, that, that they were the ones that, that made this happen. And it was a, a denial of the obvious. In the 28th verse, then Peter replies after their threats about don't talk about in this man's name anymore. He says, we must obey God rather than human beings. Um, and then he reiterates something he said before, whom in the, in the 30th verse, <clears throat> excuse me, this Jesus who you killed by hanging him on a cross. And, and that too we'll come back to in a moment. And then down to the 31st verse, um, it says, 
God exalted him at his own right hand. This is the apostle speaking before the Sanhedrin. God <clears throat> exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. And then the reaction of the Sanhedrin was they were furious in the 33rd verse. Furious. Now, does that sound familiar? Who else was on trial for the Sanhedrin and said that he himself will sit at the right hand of God? And, of course, that's Jesus himself. And we see that in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Let me read these verses, 63 to 67. Matthew 26, 63 to 67. Now notice the similarity between what's happening here to Peter and the apostles and what happened to Jesus some months earlier when he stood before the Sanhedrin. The high priest said to him, that is to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoke blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophecy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So there was this angry reaction to Jesus saying what was going to happen, that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father in glory, and now to Peter for saying that has indeed happened. This Jesus you crucified is sitting at the right hand of God. The one who said that before you not that long ago now is indeed at the right hand of God. Of God, and they were furious to hear such a claim. Now, in that group, then, was a man named Gamaliel, and apparently a very, a very wise and respected teacher of the law, a Pharisee, and he gives them wise counsel. He calms the group a little bit. In fact, to a great degree. They were probably ready to kill those guys right there, have them put to death instantly, not even worrying about the crowd. They were so angry. But Gamaliel basically says to them, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And he gives two examples of people from the past who had a following. By the way, there was multiple times during the New Testament era before and after Jesus, that, that people were claiming to be the Messiah. Even though the Messiah came after the time of Jesus, there were others said, that's not the real one I am, but it never went very far. And Gamaliel gives two examples of people before Jesus that had a following, and it all came to nothing. Interestingly, one of them, um, he talks about this man um, that was had a following during the census. That should ring a bell, right? Every year at Christmas time we read Luke 2 and how a, a census was declared. Well, the, how that affected Mary and Joseph having to travel to Bethlehem is the key to the story because that's where Jesus was supposed to be born. So that made that happen, basically. But the fact that they had 
to have a census that all the Jews knew was only going to lead to further taxation, a, a very uh, unfair tax, to say the least, that made a lot of people angry. And there was one in particular that rose up against Rome, but, you know, claiming to be the Messiah. I'm going to stop this, and of course he didn't. Another thing about Gamaliel, if you go toward the end of, of Acts, in, in the 22nd chapter, now this is a story I alluded to a moment ago in the 22nd chapter, where in, in that, same, that same text, where Paul had this angel come visit him when he was imprisoned in Jerusalem for being accused of causing a riot. And, and then that's what put him on the path to standing before Caesar. But when Paul is telling his story, he's pleading his case before this same Sanhedrin, or a little bit different, this is many years later, but still the same body of, of, of leaders. Listen to what he says in um, Acts 22, verse 3. This is Paul speaking to the Sanhedrin. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Paul was a Pharisee. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, a very well-respected one. And sometimes critics will say, well, when Luke writes about what happened in this executive meeting, now Gamaliel had them all, had the apostles moved out of the room, so it was only members of the Sanhedrin there. And as I said a few weeks, you know, a couple months now, uh, when we read about in, in Acts 4, when they were taken before the Sanhedrin the first time, how would Luke know what was said in this executive meeting, this closed meeting? Well, maybe Paul was there, a student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was there. Did Gamaliel eventually come to faith in Jesus? We're not told. But he's mentioned here later in Acts by Paul, and here's this guy bringing, calming down a very angry room against them. And then what do they do? Verse, verse 40, well, even though he persuaded them not to put them to death, they had them flogged. Now, what does that mean? Jesus was flogged. You may be familiar with how Jesus suffered, and, and, and there was... It was 39 lashes because 40 was thought to be death. So it was one short of death. So these men were whipped and beaten very severely. And yet, they went home praising God and thanking Him for the privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. What enabled them to have that kind of courage, that kind of resolve? I think it it goes back to a couple of things, but you know, on your outline that's in your bulletin, I mentioned, first of all, that law, apart from grace, imprisons us and leads to death. Law, the law of Moses and the law being embodied in the leadership of the Jewish people in this group, the Sanhedrin, okay, what was their answer to Jesus to kill him. And that's a symbol of how law only leads to death. Even though we need the law that to, to recognize our need of God, the law itself cannot overcome 
the sin nature within us. The law itself, as Paul writes in, in Romans 7, uh, even though we desire to, to obey, we find ourselves failing and falling again and again when we are just dependent upon our own rule-keeping ability, our own goodness, our own morality. We find ourselves doing the very thing that we don't want to do, as Paul says. And that is the path of the law. That is the path toward death. So, so what do we see here in the attitude of the keepers of the law, the keepers of the rules, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the others that were you know, part of this group, the high priest himself? From the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 up to and including Acts chapter 5, verse 30 here, there are six times that Peter and or the apostles say basically the same thing about the death of Jesus. Acts 2.23, this is during the, the day of Pentecost when the crowd was there and Peter's explaining what's going on. In verses 23 and 36, he says this, And you, that is people of Jerusalem, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. A few verses later, This Jesus whom you crucified. Acts chapter 3, after there's, there's miraculous healing that Peter and John did and a crowd gathered. What does Peter say then? You handed him over to be killed. Acts uh, chapter 3, verse 13. And down in, in 14, you killed the author of life. Now, now, grab that phrase for a moment. You killed the author of life. And, and kind of tuck that aside for, for a minute and we'll come back to it. And then chapter 4, verse 10, the first time they're standing before the Sanhedrin, he reiterates again, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you whom you crucified. And then here again before the Sanhedrin with all the apostles, Acts 5.30, Jesus who was raised from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. So what... Luke is emphasizing here and what, Pete, and what Peter's saying again and again and again, even though he knew it would make them angry, he's speaking the truth. You killed him. You killed him. You are responsible for this. This is what the law leads to. It leads to death and even led to the death of Jesus, the Messiah. But each time that he brings this, this accusation to them that I understand their anger for it, and yet... He would also bring the good news. But God raised him from the dead. And even you who are responsible for his death are welcomed to God through the resurrected one, through the true Messiah. But they weren't ready to hear it. They weren't ready to believe it. And as I said, some of them eventually did. Certainly if Paul was there, we know he did. And perhaps Gamaliel and some others. Uh, one of the... One of the scholars I read in preparation for this um, threw out an interesting possibility or maybe an aspect to, to not just this story, but to the, the various Jews among the Sanhedrin. While the Sadducees never wanted to hear anything about resurrection, the Pharisees perhaps were a little bit more open to it and to open to consider. Because even Gamaliel is what he's saying here. He's sort of hinting that Maybe he is the one. He didn't directly say that. But there was much more openness um, among the Pharisees than, than the rest of the group. So we see a demonstration here that, that law 
apart from grace, imprisons us. Peter is in prison, and yet something happened to bring him out of prison. That is an angel. Now, back to, to verse 19 and 20. Let's just read that of Acts 5. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Angelic appearances throughout all of Scripture, including the New Testament, are actually a very rare occurrence. And so so when God chooses to send an angel, one of his messengers, into a situation, he does it for a good reason. He does it for, for something very important that he has to intervene in this way. Six times in Acts we see angelic appearances or actions or or words spoken by an angel, and several of them happen in prison moments, as I mentioned a moment ago. Um, Even Jesus, when he was in Gethsemane, the Gospels tell us that God sent an angel to, to help him, to encourage him. It doesn't say if the angel said anything, but but the the presence of God's messenger in that moment, that even Jesus needed that assurance, that encouragement, that that comfort from, from God the Father that he sent an angel into that moment. So why did God send an angel here now in this story? And 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 why and, and what is important about what the angel said? Well, here's what the angel didn't say. Okay, Peter, I'm going to get you out of here, so I want you now to go get all this crowd who is on your side, raise up an army, and overthrow the Sanhedrin. Because they're on the wrong side here, and they need to be set right. Now, the angel didn't say that. That wasn't the will of God. The angel didn't say, you know, these guys are are going to beat you up, so you need to get even. You need to seek revenge because, you know, they're in the way of the gospel. Didn't say that either. What did he say? Go back to where the very place that got you into all this trouble and do it again. Go back to the temple courts and keep on proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected one, Jesus as the Messiah, and salvation through him. Keep doing it. And, and, and what he says, and tell the people all about this new life. This group that has, is persecuting you, this group that threw you in jail and is about to beat you, by the way, they're all about death. They were all about the death of Jesus. They're all about imprisoning people. And see, all of that is a sign of where the law by itself leads all of us. It leads us into a place of being imprisoned by sin. It leads us into a place of death, which is where all sin goes eventually. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes in Romans. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so what what the apostles needed to hear from that angel was not just, I'm going to set you free, and I want you to have the courage to go back and keep preaching, but preach about life. Because law doesn't have that. And Jesus does. 
And if the angel hadn't intervened, would the disciples have been tempted to revert back to the law themselves? Because when you think about law, what is, what is law in, in its essence? It is a, a defense of truth. They were on the side of truth. They knew that Jesus was indeed alive. They knew that Jesus really was the Messiah. And they're, all they're doing is speaking truth. And this group is saying, no, don't speak the truth. And so the law would say, well, we have to prove now that you're wrong and we're right. And where does that get us? When you try to convince people who don't want to be convinced. Where does that get us when we think we're on the side of truth and we have to say it and proclaim it and we say it louder and we say it stronger and we get other people on our side? That's not what it's about to prove the, quote, other side as being wrong. What we need to do is, is exactly what the angel told the apostles in that prison to do, is to tell people about life, to tell people about your life, to tell people about your faith in Jesus and how that has changed you and transformed you and blessed you and helped you. That's what people need to hear. They don't need to hear more, you're wrong and I'm right. There's too much of that around already in all kinds of ways. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace in action, is for us to to boldly, and sometimes it takes courage. Think of the courage to go back to the place they were arrested and eventually beaten, whipped severely. And yet they had the courage and faith to stand strong and to keep going because they had that faith and courage. We're sitting here today because the church did keep moving and it went beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into all of the world and it went beyond the lives of the apostles and it went beyond the lives of the church fathers and, and, and the, the, the church has, has moved on. Certainly not without trouble, certainly not without rocky roads, certainly not without difficulty or persecution. And yet the church lives on, and the church will always live on when we emphasize life. Amen? So remember the words of this angel. Remember that while we need the law, we are people of grace. Let's pray. Father, may this, this message today echo in our hearts and our minds in the ways in which we need it to. And help us first and foremost to be people of life, of new life, of renewed life, depending upon your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Isn't God good? Yeah, I feel, I feel good. And I believe he's going to keep me feeling good. And, you know, so um, I'm going to head out now. And Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. God bless.